Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. Today is Tuesday, October 17th. My name is Dan Malthrop. I'm chief executive here, and I'm super pleased to welcome back to the City Club of Cleveland and welcome to the new City Club of Cleveland for the first time, Yasha Monk. He's a professor at Johns Hopkins University and author of the new book, The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time. In Yasha Monk's previous visits to the City Club, he uh, spoke from our stage at 850 Euclid and also from the stage of the Happy Dog, and he discussed shifts in, the global, in global thoughts about democracy, how we got here to a place where democracy seemed to be backsliding, and how democracy can be saved. Yasha Monk has built his acclaimed scholarly career on being one of the first to warn of the risks of right-wing populists and the risks that right-wing populists pose to American democracy and the, and the initiative of liberal democracies around the world. Today, Monk joins us once again to discuss his new book, which tackles the appeal and limitations of identity-based politics, which are transforming our country and other nations as well from college campuses here in America to state capitals. He refers to it as the identity trap and argues that those on the left and in the center who are stuck in the identity trap will ultimately make it more difficult to achieve progress toward genuine equality. Yasha Monk is a political scientist known for his work on the rise of populism and the crisis of liberal democracy. He's a professor of practice of international affairs at Johns Hopkins University and the founder of the digital magazine Persuasion a contributing editor at The Atlantic, and a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. The Identity Trap is his fifth book. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join us in welcoming Yasha Monk. Um, well, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be back at the City Club. For It doesn't feel like being back because it's changed so much. I'd say I love that uh, you, when you walk in the city, you see the club, and when you're up on stage here or in the audience, you can look out at the city. I think that's a great way of symbolizing the way that the city club, from everything that I've learned in my four, three or four appearances here, um, really speaks to the city and is in conversation with, with, with the city. And it's interesting for me um, to reflect on my past appearances here because it gives a, a sense of my arc as a public writer, um, as Dan insinuated, I like to say that I'm a democracy crisis hipster, which is to say that <laughs> I worried about the crisis of democracy before it was cool. Um, and I remain very concerned about the crisis of democracy in the United States and around the world. Um, we still have many authoritarian populists in government or lying in wait in opposition uh, potentially uh, ready to take power, as in places like France. And of course, we face an uh, uh, interesting, shall we say, election in 2024 in the United States, with Donald Trump currently running head-to-head -head in the polls with Joe Biden, something that I'm personally also very concerned about. Um, at the same time, I have observed over the course of the last 10 years the rise of a set of ideas in my own neck of the woods, in universities and think tanks and newspapers and magazines that I write for uh, among my friends and acquaintances. Uh, this is 
uh, a new set of ideas about uh, identity categories like race and gender and sexual orientation um, that really has changed uh, what it means to be on the left, has changed the norms and habits of many mainstream institutions, constitutes, I think, a genuinely novel ideology, one that is different from what people in those places used to believe, different from the kinds of ideas I encountered when I first moved to the United States for graduate school about 15 years ago, and different, I think, from other identity-based movements in the history of the United States, different, for example, from the proud history of African-American activism uh, for the last 200 years. And so um, uh, I wanted to understand those ideas. I was struck by the fact that there isn't a lot of serious engagement with these ideas. Um, and so I set out to remedy that. Um, and so that's where this book called The Identity Trap comes from. So let me say a little bit about the nature of the subject of these ideas, um, why I think that they are a trap, why they both have a lure that draws people in, but ultimately uh, I think are likely to prove counterproductive. Let me tell you a little bit about the ways in which it's starting to transform our country and how that is uh, showing some of the pitfalls of these ideas. And then at the end, let me say something about how to respond to these ideas in a constructive way, one that takes the injustices that have always marked American history and continue to mark in many ways the American present seriously, but without uh, throwing the baby out of the bathwater uh, in a way that is able to build a uh, a more realistic basis for political solidarity among members of different groups, and in fact one that is more ambitious in terms of the goals that we should aim for. Right. So first of all, what is it that we're talking about here? Um, uh, you know, it's funny that there are some political traditions that are, uh, you know, are controversial in the sense that some people like them and some people dislike them, um, but we still are able to call them by the same term, right? Uh, so socialism, uh, perhaps one or two of you are socialists, uh, the way that I'm guessing, uh, uh, Dan, perhaps unfairly, the membership of a city club, um, probably most of you are not socialists. Um, but whether or not you're a socialist, uh, we can agree to refer to that ideology by the name of socialism. There's people who proudly say, I'm a socialist, and people say socialism is terrible, and they'll use the same term, right? One of the strange things about the ideology that I'm speaking about today, that I'm covering in my book, is that there isn't such a neutral term that we can make the basis of our debate. So often people refer to these ideas as woke. This is a term that originated within activists who proudly said, we are woke. But today when you say woke this, woke that, it makes you sound like an old man frothing at the mouth, right? It's become this kind of bad term, right? Um, uh, and so I think that we need a term to be able to have a basis for a serious conversation. And so I use for the purposes of a book uh, the term the identity synthesis, because I do think that this ideology is effectively about um, a set of uh, uh, ideas regarding uh, the role that identity does play in the world and the role that identity 
should play in the world. It's making an argument that how we treat each other and how the state should treat all of us should depend in large part on the kind of identity groups to which we belong. And it is, I think, and I have a whole part of a book, but I won't talk about that much today, um, uh, uh, chronicling the origins of these ideas. These ideas are, I think, a synthesis of different intellectual uh, influences, including postmodernism, postcolonialism, and critical race theory. And so uh, the idea of the identity synthesis is to emphasize that they come from there. If you want to call it something else, I don't really care. Uh, one writer said, just tell me what to call it, I call it that. We can call it the thing, if you like. Um, but I do think that the thing is real. It is something new. There is a there there. We need a term to be able to call it, and we need to be able to analyze what it actually consists of. So, what is the nature of these ideas? Where do they actually come from? What constitutes these ideas? Again, our linguistic confusion about them makes it hard to talk about this sometimes. Think of a kind of a scare word in uh, parts of our media landscape right now, like critical race theory, right? Um, you have people on the right claiming that critical race theory is anything uh, they dislike, like wanting to teach school children about the history of slavery in this country. Right? But then as a result, I see many of my friends and colleagues saying, well, critical race theory, that's just wanting to think critically about the role that race plays in society and what could be controversial about that. That is something straightforward that we should obviously do. Um, but if, as I did for this book, you actually trace the intellectual history of these ideas, you see that the claims of its originators are much more self-consciously controversial. Derek Bell, one of the founders of critical race theory, said that we need to get rid of what he called the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. Kimberly Crenshaw, another key uh, theorist of critical race theory, wrote in 2010, briefly after the election of Barack Obama, that Obama's political philosophy was fundamentally at odds with the key tenets of critical race theory. So this indicates that to understand these ideas, we need to delve a little bit deeper to understand where they are coming from. And it seems to me that one way of understanding this is to see precisely where, in an explicit way, it diverges from other identity-based movements in the history of the United States. So when Frederick Douglass was invited by his compatriots to hold a speech commemorating the 4th of July, uh, he lambasted them for their hypocrisy, saying, you know, the speakers before me have been talking about uh, the lovely sentiments in the Declaration of Independence, about how all men are born equal. How can you be serious about that at a time when a lot of people in this country are enslaved? Uh, you guys are hypocrites. But he did not then go on to say that we should rip up the Declaration of Independence, that we should give up on those ideas. On the contrary, he said, if you mean those values seriously, if you're serious about those ideals, then by what virtue are you excluding me and other people like me from the enjoyment of those ideas? Right? We are going to make political progress by demanding that African Americans and other uh, oppressed groups are going to be treated in the way that the Constitution promised. Um, Martin Luther King 
stood in the same tradition. He talked about the fact that the Bank of Justice had made a promissory note to African Americans and that that promissory note was fraudulent, that the country had never lived up to that promissory note. But again, he didn't say, let's rip up that promissory note. He said, uh, the Bank of Justice must honor that promissory note, must live up to the promises that it has made. What is interesting about uh, the set of ideas that animate the identity synthesis is that they self-consciously reject these ideas. If you go back to somebody like Derek Bell, uh, he's a very interesting figure. He's a uh, African-American civil rights lawyer who does heroic work in the 1960s, helping to desegregate schools and businesses and other institutions throughout the American South. But in the process of this work, he comes to have a number of very understandable frustrations. He notes, for example, that sometimes the clients on whose behalf he's arguing don't profit from his lawsuits because by the time that they manage to desegregate some high school, they've graduated high school, so they're not going to be able to get that benefit. Those are obviously understandable frustrations. He was right to be upset about those things. But he took an inference from that, which is rather striking, because he came to agree, as he acknowledges in his first influential academic article called Serving Two Masters, with the critique of civil rights law posed by segregationist senators in the American South, who had always claimed that these civil rights lawyers and these liberals from the North who are coming in, they don't really care about their clients. They pretend to be speaking on behalf of their clients. Really what they're doing is to try to impose uh, the integrationist ideals uh, on our society because that's what their own agenda is. They're serving two masters as the title of this academic article puts it, they claim to be arguing on behalf of the clients when really they're just trying to serve those ideals. And Derek Bell, this African-American, uh, originally civil rights lawyer, comes to agree with that critique and says the problem with the civil rights movement is that it is trying to integrate those institutions, it is trying to impose those ideals rather than to serve the interests of uh, the clients, which in some cases would be to have schools that are separate but truly equal. But in some cases, actually, what they should have pushed for is segregated institutions that would treat black students better than previous ones did. So when Bell talks about the need to have a uh, rejection of a defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement, that is what he's talking about. He ends up having a very pessimistic view of the nature of the United States and the ability to make progress on issues like race in America, arguing in the year 2000 that the nature of racism in the country may have changed, but that America remained as racist in 2000 as it was in 1950 or as it had been in 1850. Talking about the permanence of racism and our inability to make progress. And so he advocates for a very different solution from the one that people like Frederick Douglass and MLK had embraced. Because if you think that up to the year 2000, you haven't been able to make any kind of progress, that the country is as unjust as it had been 50 or 100 or 200 years earlier, then understandably, your inference is going to be 
that attempts to try and live up to the Constitution, to try and live up to the promissory note that has not been honored in the past, are a mistake, that you have to rip those up and start from scratch. And what Derek Bell and the broader tradition that he represents end up doing is to say, rather than aspiring to creating a society where the groups into which we're born define us less, where we come to have less of a role in how we treat each other, in the kind of benefits uh, uh, and rights we can expect to enjoy from the state. The only way to make progress is to explicitly make how we treat each other, how the state treats all of us, depend on our identity groups. That's going to be the only way to make progress. And so, uh, uh, you know, I've talked about race. We can talk in similar ways about sexual orientation and, and gender. But that, I think, stands at the core of the new ideas that help to explain uh, a, a good amount of social justice uh, politics and progressive politics uh, today. And so uh, the book is called The Identity Trap uh, because the metaphor of a trap, I think, allows us to think about these things in the, the right way. A trap uh, has a lure. Right? It has something that draws you in, something that gives you a reason to approach yourself to the trap. But once you fall into the trap, it is counterproductive. It is bad for the person who has fallen into the trap. So to understand this ideology, I think we have to see how it is a lure, but also how it ends up being a trap. So let me talk about that a little bit next. The lure, I think, is relatively straightforward, and it's one that I see strongly in the students I teach. It's one that I feel myself, which is that, of course, there are deep and real injustices in our society. And this ideology claims that it allows us to deal with those problems in the most radical, uncompromising way possible. Right? It says, look, uh, uh, our political system is so imperfect. There's so many bad things going on. Um, perhaps what we need is a radical break with the past and a radical break with the principles that motivate it in order to make progress. And I am the person who, in the most uncompromising way, is going to fight for those things. I can see why that's very appealing. And yet I want to argue that uh, these ideas end up being a trap in a number of important ways, uh, both politically and individually and personally. So it is a trap, uh, first of all, uh, because it has made it very difficult for important organizations, many progressive organizations that have uh, missions I care about to do their job. As you may have read in newspapers and magazines over the last years, we've had just an uh, incredible series of meltdowns in nonprofit organizations, in advocacy groups over the course of the last years. The head of one influential organization has said that uh, uh, they now spend more time fighting each other than they do trying to fight the social causes for which they care. Um, I know that one friend of mine who was uh, very skeptical about this book project, very skeptical about the ideas that in you know, private I've been talking to her and others about, um, uh, I didn't see her for a few years because of a pandemic, 
Uh, and uh, when I finally saw her again at a bigger gathering, she made a beeline for me straight across the room and said, Yasha, I think I've come to see what you've been talking about. And I say, how come? And she says, well, the organization I work for, and it's an organization that does really important work serving some of the uh, most underserved people in the country, uh, just tore itself apart over the course of the pandemic. And a bunch of people were fired, and it basically broke apart. She ended up changing jobs because she was so frustrated by the lack of focus on the actual mission. And that opened her eyes, and she became more open to this argument because of that experience. So I think that is one real problem. I think another problem is the kind of norms that these ideas are now inspiring in many parts of the educational system. One of the conversations I had uh, that really stuck with me when I was researching this book was with a woman called Kyla Posey, um, who's a uh, African-American educator in the suburbs of Atlanta. Um, and Kyla told me that she has two daughters who are seven and nine years old. Um, uh, and she asked the principal of her school whether she would be able to choose a uh, classroom for one of her daughters. And the principal said, sure, no problem, send me along the name of the teacher you would prefer. And Kyla did that, sending in the name, and suddenly the principal uh, you know, kind of tried to defer you know, and said, well, we'll look into it, but isn't there some other teacher you might want for your daughter? What about this other kind of teacher? Um, and Kyla eventually got impatient and said, what's going on here? Why, why won't you let my daughter go to the class that she prefers? And finally she said, well, that's not the black class. Now that sounds like an old-fashioned story of racial segregation in the American South, um, but it turns out a little bit different. It turns out a little bit more complicated than that because the uh, principal of the school is a black woman, a very progressive black woman. Uh, who has bought into a new set of progressive ideas which claim that uh, uh, the key part of a good progressive education is to get students to think of themselves as quote-unquote racial beings, to foreground the racial identity in the right way, and that this would only happen if uh, Kyla's daughters were in classes that have uh, you know, a lot of people of their own race. And so she wanted to impose that choice on uh, Kyla Posey. Uh, you know, Kyla told me, look, um, I watched the inauguration of Kamala Harris with my two daughters. And you know, they said, well, one day I'm going to be Vice President of the United States. I'm gonna, one day I'm going to be President of the United States. I, I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but they're going to be in a lot of rooms with a lot of people. And they need to be able to get along with anybody from any walk of life. And so who is the principal of the school to tell me what the right social environment for my kids is, to tell me that the, the children the friends they already have in the class are not the right ones because they're not from the right group. Um, now, this is an extreme example at a public school in, in Georgia, but it is part of a wider trend. Um, there's a lot of private schools around the country now in which uh, teachers go into classrooms in the third grade, in the second grade, in the first grade, and divide kids up by race and put them in different classrooms. Um, so the black kids go into one classroom, and the Latino kids into another one, the Asian American kids into a third one, the white kids into a fourth one. These are not 16, 17-year-olds opting into a club in high school, right? These are six, seven, eight-year-olds being put into those groups in order to tell them that that identity is the most 
important. Ivanwit has a number of problems. A friend of mine told me about experiencing something like that on his first day of college. His dad is African-American, his mom is uh, Puerto Rican, and he said, well, I had to choose on the first day of college between my Latino and my black identity, <laughs> right? Uh, and that didn't feel right. So, that, so that's one of the problems, that when people don't neatly fit into those groups, you don't exactly know where you go. But I think there's a deeper problem, one that's informed by all of my understanding of uh, uh, history and social science, which is that how we identify depends strongly on context. People are able to think of themselves in all kinds of different ways. But once you prime membership in some kind of group, once you say the most important thing about you is you're belonging in this group, in this context, then it's a very universal human instinct to favor the in-group, sometimes to treat members of the in-group with great courage and altruism, but also often to discriminate against the out-group. It's what has made humans historically capable of great cruelty towards those who belong to different groups. So if we split kids up in that kind of way, I worry about creating a zero-sum conflict between different ethnic groups, and I worry particularly about what's going to happen to the white kids. Not because they might be uncomfortable. As a college professor, I think people being uncomfortable as part of education sometimes is good. But because what it'll do to their self-conception. The Bank Street School on the Upper West Side of Manhattan says that it wants to encourage its students, its white students, to own their whiteness, to own their European heritage, to think of themselves as racial beings. And the idea is that they're going to you know, understand what white privilege is and become great anti-racist activists. I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think if at scale, that's how you teach students, those white kids are going to start to fight for the interests of their group, are going to become racists or white supremacists rather than anti-racists and campaigners against white privilege. So that is a concern I have. I worry about the way in which the identity trap is starting to influence public policy in ways that, again, is going to make it much harder to sustain the kind of mutual solidarity we need to maintain a constructive politics over time. And sometimes in ways that simply make for bad policy that makes everybody worse off. One example of this uh, that was particularly striking to me was when I sat through the meeting of uh, ACIP, the key advisory group to the Centers of Disease Control, that was tasked with figuring out how to distribute scarce uh, life-saving COVID vaccine in the middle of the pandemic. So if you remember, back at the end of 2020, we finally had these life-saving vaccines whose inventors just rightly got the Nobel Prize in medicine. Um, but we didn't have enough doses to go around. And so like other countries, we had to figure out who would come first. Um, now, every country in the world pretty much um, gave some doses first to hospital workers because we didn't want to run out of doctors. But after that, they went by age, by descending order of age, because we know that older people are um, uh, uh, exponentially more likely to die from COVID than younger people. Well, ACIP in its key meeting acknowledged that according to the CDC's own models, this course of action would save between 0.5 and 6.5% of people, possibly thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people. It acknowledged that this would be easier to roll out 
because it's relatively easy to communicate. First, the people over 80 are up, then the people over 75 are up. If you're 73, you'll be up on December 1st, right? And yet it rejected that course of action. It rejected that course of action because, uh, in its own words, older people are disproportionately white in the United States. And so therefore it would violate the goal of equity. Instead, what happened is a weird mismatch in uh, a lot of states. Each state adopted slightly different rules, but broadly speaking, they made some older people eligible, but they also made a huge group of essential workers eligible. And so what happened? Political fights over who's an essential worker. In LA, movie producers were essential workers. In New York, finance executives were essential workers. In the state of Maryland, college professors like me were essential workers, <laughs> even though we weren't allowed to teach in person. <laughs> and so we had huge numbers of people eligible for these vaccines, but very few spots. So who got those spots? Well, people, relatively privileged people like those in this room who were able to click on websites all day long, refresh the CVS website until you got a slot, right? Uh, people like a friend of mine who got bored of that and has some training in computer science who wrote a little computer macro to click on that CVS slot before everybody else, right? People who were able to drive to faraway corners of a state where there happened to be a pharmacy that had availability. Right? So it actually ended up helping the most privileged people. And I'm uh, pretty sure uh, that in the end, this ended up killing not just more Americans, but more Americans of all races, more Americans who are non-white as well. Because the uh, age effect in COVID is so strong that if you give two black 25-year-old uh, uh, Uber drivers the vaccine, rather than one uh, black 80-year-old retiree, more black people are going to die, right? So the stakes of some of these ideas and decisions are real. And, and finally, I think it's a political trap for yet another reason, which is that, if I, as I show in the book, one of the reasons why it became hard to criticize some of these bad ideas on the left after 2016 is that Donald Trump won and people understandably felt scared and uh, they ended up uh, having a lot less tolerance for in-group critics. If you were on the left as I am and you started to criticize some of those ideas, people could accuse you of running interference for Donald Trump and being a traitor, and so therefore it became really hard and powerless to criticize those ideas. But conversely, I think one of the reasons why Donald Trump is running neck to neck with Joe Biden in polls for 2024 is that uh, these ideas now have such a hold over mainstream institutions that this is driving a key segment of the electorate into the hands of people like Donald Trump. I don't share this assessment, um, but more voters in the United States today believe that the Democratic Party is too extreme than that the Republican Party is too extreme. And I don't agree with that, but that is a problem for those of us who worry about uh, Donald Trump winning in 2024. According to an analysis in the New York Times, there's a key segment of Republican voters at the moment, about 10% of Republican voters, who are predominantly young, predominantly non-white, predominantly progressive on a lot of social issues, but who are so concerned about what we call wokeness in uh, institutions that they are set on voting for somebody like Donald Trump. So ideologically, these two sets of ideas might seem like opposites. They might seem like they're on different ends of a political spectrum. But I think in key ways, 
they actually end up being mutually reinforcing. One is the yin to the other's yang. Um, I'm going to look at the time here. Um, so how do we get out of this? How are we able to take injustices in the country seriously, um, to keep pushing for a more just society, but without embracing some of these ideas that I think end up being deeply counterproductive? Well, the first part of that has to be at the level of argument, and then the second part of that is at the level of how to push back against these ideas. So I think you can boil down the ideas I've been talking about to three basic claims. It's a simplification, but I think it gets to the core of this tradition. And they are the following ones. The number one, that the key dimension for understanding uh, uh, our interactions today, for understanding political events, for understanding political revolutions, for understanding the world, is identity categories like race, gender, and sexual orientation. In fact, um, Robin DiAngelo, the white diversity trainer who's been a uh, best-selling author, who perhaps has been a, a visitor here at the City Club, I don't know, at some point, has said uh, uh, at one point that every time a white person interrupts a black person, they're bringing the entire apparatus of white supremacy to bear on them. Now, that may be true in some circumstances, right? I can certainly imagine circumstances where something like that is true, but that sentence makes me think that Robin DiAngelo doesn't have a single black friend. Because part of friendship is that you sometimes interrupt each other, right? Part of what it is to engage as equals is that either I might have a rapport interruption where I finish your sentence in order to demonstrate I understand what you're saying, or perhaps some say, no, I disagree with you. Right? But, but, but that is part of what it is to engage as equals. So I think if you say something like that, you're actually betraying something rather strange about yourself. The second key claim of this tradition is, as we saw earlier in discussing somebody like Derek Bell, that the sort of principles and rules enshrined in the Constitution, the 14th Amendment, and civil rights legislation, Brown versus Board of Education, those are all just meant to pull the wool over our eyes. Right? They're just actually there to perpetuate uh, injustice and discrimination. They explain why we haven't been able to make any progress until today. And so thirdly, therefore, we have to rip those up. We have to rip the long-standing norms and institutions of our society up. We have to rip up the Constitution, civil rights legislation, and so on, and really make how we treat each other depend on the groups of which we're a part. That is the core set of claims, and I think that there is a coherent set of responses to that, that uh, what I call philosophical liberals, people who believe in the basic principles of our political system, can give. Which is number one, but of course, race, gender, and sexual orientation matter. Of course, they help to explain some of the injustices in our society today. But there's other categories of analysis that are important as well, that to understand our society, for example, you also need to understand social class. You need to understand religion, you need to understand patriotism and nationalism, whether good or bad. You need to understand individual actions and preferences and idiosyncrasies and aspirations. Right? But rather than coming to a situation with one preset notion and imposing it in that situation, you look at each situation, let that situation teach you 
how to understand it, how to interpret it. And sometimes it's going to be gender, sometimes it's going to be sexual orientation, sometimes it's going to be race, but in other contexts it's going to be different things. Secondly, I think it's to insist that the kind of rules and principles that are rejected by the identity trap are what has historically allowed us to make incomplete but significant progress in the United States. Frederick Douglass didn't want to get rid of free speech. He called free speech the dread of tyrants. And it's not because he didn't realize what people were saying and writing horrible things in his day. It's because he realized that is what allows the weakest in society, the most marginalized in society, to have a peace. That's what allowed abolitionists in his day to fight for emancipation, even though that was a very unpopular cause in large parts of the country. Right? And so, uh, to me, to claim that we haven't made any progress uh, uh, on uh, uh, homophobia, for example, as some gay rights organizations say today, is offensive. It's not offensive because we're also wonderfully tolerant, but it's offensive because within the lifetime of most people in this room, Ellen DeGeneres had to leave her sitcom because she publicly acknowledged uh, being in a relationship with a woman. It's offensive because it minimizes the kind of injustices that people faced in the recent past. And so finally, therefore, the solution is not to get rid of these ideals, it is to aim to live up to them, right? It is to say that uh, uh, if you are inspired by Marcus founding documents or if you are a philosophical liberals and liberal in my terminology, um, that is a progressive creed, right? It's not a creed that says everything is already fine. It's a creed that's saying we have a lot of work to do in order to actually live up to our ideals. But the point is not to start over from scratch. It's not to reject everything. It is to build on what is good and right in this tradition and to fight to make our reality accord more closely with the promises that we've made. And so just a final word, um, what I'm trying to communicate today and what I'm trying to inhabit as I talk about these ideas in this book is that there is a way of arguing back against these ideas that is uncompromising, but that is gracious and uh, intellectually serious. I see a temptation at the moment of some of the people who are arguing back against quote-unquote wokeness um, to just reject anything they, they might that anybody might describe as woke, or to become jerks, or to become very confrontational, in part perhaps because of sort of fear that criticizing these ideas might get you canceled, might get you in trouble, right? I think the right way to argue back is to claim the moral high ground. Um, uh, these ideas are based in what I think is gonna create a better society. I might be wrong about them, we all might be wrong about what we believe in various ways, um, uh, but they come from a lot of reflection, and, and, and I think they're actually more ambitious. They're not just more realistic, they're more ambitious in terms of the kind of society that we can and should try to create. And so I hope that uh, if you disagree with me, uh, you recognize my good faith, and if you agree with me, um, you will try and follow a similar model in how to argue against these ideas from the moral high ground, uh, trying to set out what a better vision is for how our society can get uh, more just. Thank you, sir. I'm going to do a quick transition to Sounds the Q&A here, real quick. Hello again, everybody. I'm Dan Malthrop. We're about to begin the audience Q&A for our live stream audience. 
Uh, welcome. We're joined by Yasha Monk. He's professor at Johns Hopkins University and the author of the new book, The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. Book sales are made possible by our very good friends at Max Bax on Coventry. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, and those of you joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to text a question for our speaker, you can text it to 330-541-5794. The number again is 330-541-5794, and we'll work it into the program. May we have our first question. Thank you, Professor, and uh, thank you for a, a thoughtful and uh, very, very interesting uh, speech. Uh, and given your background in academics, I have to ask, what's your analysis of the Supreme Court's decision on affirmative action? Did they get it right? Yeah, um, so I, in general, am not a fan of debating moral questions through the framework of sort of fighting over what particular phrases in the Constitution mean. Um, I think that's something that sometimes uh, we in America do too much. So, uh, you know, whether or not the death penalty is a good idea, I don't think comes down to whether or not it constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. Um, but in this particular case, I think that there's a longstanding um, constitutional way of thinking about this that actually liberals and conservatives on the Supreme Court agree about, which is helpful. And that is to say that first of all, uh, in accordance with the 14th Amendment, we should be very, very reticent to use race as the marker that determines who gets what in society, because too often in American history it's been used for very nefarious purposes. Secondly, that there can be circumstances in which there's a compelling state interest, right? Something that we recognize as being really, really important that seemingly requires us to engage in those kind of racial distinctions, right? Thirdly, that when we do so, we have to make sure that these remedies are narrowly tailored, that they are the best way of actually accomplishing uh, that uh, stated purpose. And we have to have strict, strict scrutiny. We have to have a lot of scrutiny from judges and other people to make sure that uh, this use isn't uh, metastizing in ways that end up being dangerous. And that's something that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia broadly agreed upon. And the fight then always was over, well, is this a sufficiently compelling state interest? Is it narrowly tailored? Uh, what kind of consequences do we get from, from strict scrutiny? I think that's the right mental framework. Now, I will say one broader thing, which is a couple of broader things. One is, I understand, I am much more sympathetic in general to attempts to uh, engage in forms of reparation than in uh, workarounds to reparations or in uh, institutions that permanently make how people are treated based on their skin color, right? It's one thing to have a one-off set of serious reparations than to distinguish, uh, as the Biden administration has done at some point, you know, which restaurant owner gets relief because of the revenue loss through COVID based on their skin color, right? Um, in the same way here, I think the case for African-American descendants of slaves in particular, um, gaining some admissions advantage because of the injustices they've experienced in history and because of the way that that's continues to restrict educational opportunities for, for parts of that community, I think is strong. I get that as a normative case. The, 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 the rationale of diversity, which means that you know, some kid from Spain who spent a few years in Mexico somehow 
uh, counts as, uh, you know, a disfavored category um, is more complicated. The fact that about 50% of my black students, uh, wonderful students, um, uh, are recent, the children of recent immigrants from Nigeria or Kenya who do not have a history of being enslaved in this country, right, uh, rather than actual descendants of slave. I mean, it's complicated. <laughs> I'm not sure that that, right, makes a lot of sense. And the, the broader thing I'll say is that I'm not, as you learn today, a burn the system down kind of a guy. Um, when it comes to the American admission system, I have to say I'm kind of a burn the whole system down kind of a guy, right? I think it's absurd that my kids would gain an admissions advantage at the university at which I teach because I'm a professor there. That's just common at American universities, that they give admissions advances to the kids of their professors. Why? Right? I think it's absurd that most of your kids will gain an advantage to be admitted to whichever school you went to. I don't think that's fair. I don't think it makes sense that athletes get an admissions advantage. I don't think it's fair that uh, people get an ad admissions advantage because they're going to play the second violin in the university orchestra. I don't think it makes sense that boys right now get a huge admissions advantage because girls outperform them and universities are really scared of not having a 50-50 gender ratio because, God forbid, all the kids don't have somebody to date. I don't know what the reason is, right? <laughs> so um, so I, I'm sort of in favor of just scrapping the American admission system and starting from scratch. I was surprised by your description of the renewed segregation in some schools. And as a as a student, I was part of the uh, the busing activities, specifically in Indianapolis, that you know was eliminating that. And there's some that argue that those desegregation activities actually created a negative effect on both black and white students because of the distraction of that desegregation. And so the question is, given that, should we be doing anything to try to fight this effort to, towards more segregation? Yeah, well, um, look, broadly speaking, yes. I d deeply believe that the answer is more integration rather than uh, segregation or these new forms of uh, what I call progressive separatism that have become uh, uh, common and popular in many, uh, especially elite schools in this country. And there's very good um, social psychology to back this up. One of the biggest research programs in social psychology over the last 75 years is called intergroup contact theory. And what people have found in a huge number of contexts around the world among uh, black and white Americans, but also among Protestant and Catholic people in Northern Ireland, uh, among uh, uh, people of various uh, uh, ethnic groups in Latin America, um, is that uh, when we are in contact with each other, we reduce the prejudices we hold against each other. And interestingly, that ends up being particularly true under a certain set of circumstances. Um, it's true when, in that situation, we are equals. It doesn't mean that we are equals in society as a whole, that's something that may not be possible, right? But that in that situation, we're equals. That we have a common goal that we're working towards cooperatively in that situation. And that the authorities and the institutions are sending you the message that you're expected to get along, right? 
So what's a great example of that? A sports team. Right? I'm not much of a jock, right? But the idea of putting six-year-olds or 10-year-olds or 15-year-olds on a sports team and saying, you're both players on this team, you're equal here. You have the same goal, you better win this game, right? And cut out, am I allowed to swear here? <laughs> cut out the shit, right? Like you're, not, like, you're not gonna have fights with each other, right? We need to be a team, we need to get along, right? That creates the conditions where then in the locker room or afterwards, people can also open up and say, hey, these are the experiences I have because of a group that I'm a part of, and, 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 and can you have a little bit more empathy for that? Right? That's how people end up coming into conversation with each other and reducing prejudices. To tell kids at seven or eight years old, um, you know, you're defined by being part of this group, you go over there, you're defined by being part of that group, you go over there, etc. cetera. Um, uh, uh, that I think is violating the conditions of this kind of intergroup contact in a really systematic way. Now, uh, you know, part of living in a free society is that adults can make their own choices about who they want to associate with. We have freedom of association, right? When 16, 18, 25 year olds choose who to hang out with and they choose to mostly uh, spend time in a particular group, that is one of the rights they have as Americans, that's fine. But we should think about what kind of norms our institutions are setting up. Right? So one example of this is that colleges and universities, and perhaps many of you have had this experience, used to, slightly, as a European, I find it slightly cruel and unusual, which is that um, you know, America is a land of creature comforts. Everybody has you know, a pool and, and, and a nice house. And then in the first year of college, you literally have to share your room with a stranger you've never met. Right? This doesn't happen elsewhere. Um, <laughs> but I think there's a very good thing about it. And colleges used to not give you the choice of who you're going to be roommates with. Right? And sometimes they deliberately try to make it somebody who's going to be pretty different from you in all kinds of ways. Most colleges have given that up. Most colleges now allow people to send in a request of somebody they already know, or somebody they've met on social media. Right? And some colleges have built segregated dorms that they encourage students to go and live in. Right? That is making the wrong choices as institutions in terms of how we encourage what people do. Right? We all have the freedom to make our own choices as individuals. But the choices we're making collectively in our institutions about what we encourage, and I think we're going in the wrong direction on all of that. Hi, good afternoon. Um, first and foremost, thank you so much for being here. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. As you can see, I have like a book of notes. Um, so just on that last point about uh, colleges, you know, forcing uh, students to live together and, and the importance of that, especially students that don't share the same identities, I will definitely say that many colleges have given that up because of the racism that black students have to endure by staying there um, and understanding that, you know, people's college experiences are very different and it just depends on who you center. So um, just a point on that. So are there contemporary examples where you believe that there is a rejection of identity politics? Do you believe that there has been um, more inclusive or equitable outcomes for black women or other marginalized communities when they are fighting against this systemic oppression? Because it's really interesting how you've completely separated that, but is there, are there any examples, contemporary ones? I know you've hearkened back to Frederick Douglass, which is great, but you know, I'm a millennial, so all about me. But are there any uh, contemporary examples of this? Yeah, um, well, I think there's lots of examples of, so for me, you know, sometimes editors, you don't control your own headlines as a writer, and sometimes you want to write about this stuff. 
editors say that sort of how to argue against identity politics, but yeah. I, I think that's too broad because uh, I, I think Frederick Douglass engaged in identity politics, and MLK engaged in identity politics. The question is what the demand is of a kind of society you're trying to create. So let me give you an example, because we've talked a lot about race today, of, 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 of a slightly different field, gay rights, right? Sure. I'm friends with uh, two people, Jonathan Rauch and Andrew O'Sullivan, um, who were among the first people in the world to argue for the concept of same-sex marriage. When that just seemed like a weird, quixotic idea, in the late 80s, early 90s, people just, it was inconceivable that the two men might be able to marry, right? And when they talk about this, they say the first fight we had to win, the first fight we had to wage was within the gay rights community. Because there's a whole bunch of people who are saying, marriage, that's a terrible bourgeois institution, and it's really boring. Right? We, we don't want to be married, what are you talking about? Right? We, wanna, um, we are radicals, we want to we get rid of the institution of marriage. Right? We have to say, no, 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 in order to win this fight, we actually, need to um, ask for equal treatment. We need to say, by what virtue are you excluding us from the protection of this institution just because we happen to love somebody of the same sex? And that's not only what allowed this amazing progress in same-sex marriage, it is part of how the gay rights movement transformed American attitudes towards gays and lesbians more broadly. That is how that argument ended up being one, right? I think there's similar evidence on uh, public policy when it comes to race. There's really good evidence that when you ask people uh, how they feel about public policies that predominantly uh, benefit uh, uh, non-white people, if you frame it in more universal terms and say everybody on the basis of the economic situation is going to get this benefit, and you say in the, in the question, in the experiment, and you know, this is going to disproportionately benefit people of, you know, Latinos, or African Americans, or whatever, right? There's quite a lot of support for it. If you say that you're going to make it uh, for considerations of racial, racial equity, because the goal is to boost the standing of one racial group rather than another, then support for those kinds of policies falls off very, very radically, right? So when you think about how should we fight to end something like child poverty in the United States, so we had a great program on that. Recently it expired and now more people are going to be in child poverty again, right? I think that there's both a moral and a strategic, a practical case that the universal framing is going to be much more successful. I think that's right because every kid in America deserves to know that they're going to have dinner irrespective of the group they're from. Mm -hmm. But it's also true, uh, it's also true because actually um, if, for example, Latino kids are disproportionately likely to be in poverty, when a program that helps all kids on the basis of just being kids who are in poverty is gonna disproportionately help Latinos, so it'll actually help to serve equity in that kind of way. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, because that's the kind of measure that can win politically. As I don't think it's going to win if it's based more explicitly on equity. It's gonna be much harder to build that coalition to win those majorities. Yashimak for joining us at the City Club today. Our forum today is part of our Authors in Conversation series, which we present in partnership with Cuyahoga Arts and Culture and the Cuyahoga County Public Library. City Club is grateful for the, or the uh, continued support of both organizations. We'd like to welcome guests at tables hosted by the Mandel Honors College. Thank you for being with us today.
And this Friday, October 20th, we will host a debate about issue one. That's the citizen-led ballot initiative aiming to protect reproductive choice. It's on November's ballot. Please join us for that. And you're also invited to submit questions for that as well. And you're encouraged to vote. Next Tuesday, Heather Conley, president of the German Marshall Fund of the United States, will join us for a discussion about the importance of global alliances and strategic relations. You can learn more about all of these forums and others at cityclub.org. That brings us to the end of our forum today. Thank you once again to Yasha Monk, and thank you members and friends of the City Club. I'm Dan Malthrop. Our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.